Hey, good morning. Welcome, Matt. We good? Um, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. I am slightly congested, uh, but it's been that way for about a month, so I'm probably not contagious anymore. Actually, I don't even know if that's medically true. I'm probably very contagious, but uh, I feel great. I just sound a little stopped up. But um, in January, uh, historically, we preach what we call a vision series, uh, and this is we're going to spend a couple weeks in a vision, a couple weeks. Uh, not like a revelation vision like we did all fall, but like we're going to spend a couple weeks in talking about who we are and what we do and why we do it here. Um, and then starting last week of January, we'll begin our spring series in the book of Matthew. But for a few weeks, uh, we have a few visitors. We certainly have some uh, longtime members and attenders. Uh, it's a good time to kind of refresh as we're starting the new year just to kind of talk about who we are, what we believe here, why we believe it, what we believe about transformation and our role in the world and in the city. Uh, and so we preach you our vision. Uh, Midtown 12 South's vision statement has recently received a little touch-up to make it a little bit more concise. Um, not that any of y'all had the previous one memorized anyway, but here is the updated vision statement for Midtown 12 South. It says this. It says, we're being transformed into agents of gospel renewal and revival for the glory of God and the good of Nashville. We're being transformed into agents of gospel renewal and revival for the glory of God and the good of Nashville. Now, uh, as a church, we don't preach vision statements. We preach the Bible. We preach scripture. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of walk through this vision statement over the next couple of weeks, but we're going to spend all of our time in one passage of scripture that shows you that we didn't just come up with our vision statement. It's, we didn't reinvent the wheel. The vision statement of 12 South is deeply rooted in scripture, and we could have preached it from many, many passages, could have preached it from basically the whole story of the whole Bible. But the passage we're going to spend three consecutive weeks in talking about our vision statement and how our vision statement comes out of it is from 2 Corinthians 5, 10 verses in 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite sections of scripture, and it speaks to the realities of our 12 South vision statement. So here it is, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 through 21, and we're going to kind of pair up our vision statement with 2 Corinthians 5, the second half of it. So here it is, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. <coughs> I sound great. <clears throat> verse 11 says this, therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on, Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So today we're going to talk about the first part of our vision statement and show you kind of where this comes from in the 2 Corinthians 5 passage. It comes from lots of places, like we said biblically. But the, the first part of our vision statement is this. Allie, you can kind of highlight it. Uh, I think you made a slide like that. Guys, Allie is our slides. No, she didn't do that. But guys, Allie runs our slides most Sundays and makes all of our graphics. Give it up for Allie for a second. Thank you. She's great. We pay, we pay her for one of those things. Um, but we are being transformed. That's the first part of our vision statement. We are being transformed. It's an interesting sentence structure. I know you probably didn't come to church to get a grammar lesson. But this sentence includes a few different tenses. The first part, we are being, is a present continuous passive phrase. Present continuous passive. Meaning this, we are being is this ongoing action in the present that is currently happening to the recipient. We are being, something is ongoing and is currently happening in the present to the individual or to the group, we. But this first part of the vision statement, we were very intentional about this. We are being transformed also has a past tense in it, transformed. Something is currently happening, we are being, and has already happened, transformed. We believe that the Bible teaches that if you belong to Jesus, if you're a member of his kingdom, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you have been transformed. Look at verse 17 with me again. This is what we're going to spend our whole time talking about. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are a Christian, something has happened to you. You have moved from death to life. You have moved from dark to light. You have moved from old to new. A transformation has happened. Something has radically and comprehensively changed about you. You have been transformed. So what was old and dead and dark about the old you? If you're a Christian, something was old about you and dark and dead. What was old and dark and dead about you? Well, a lot could be said about that, but essentially here's what Paul is saying. Paul's who wrote 2 Corinthians. He's saying there was an old self and the old self refers to everything that used to control your pre-Christian existence, everything, your whole being, your existential reality, your value system, your behavior, everything about that that was old has now been transformed and is new. Everything has been transformed about you. And we can look at a, lot, at a lot of areas to try to expose and explain the places that were old but now are new. And sometimes the old self still likes to rear its head even in the new self. But one of the most identifiable and distinguishable places to look at in your life that the, if you're not a Christian, this is your only option. If you are a Christian, this is how you used to be and how we can still be sometimes is the place where we get our identity. Now, I have no qualms saying to you that just about everybody you meet or interact with on any given day has no idea who they are. Now, they will tell you what they do. They will tell you their story. They will tell you who they want to be, but they have no idea who they are. Because here's what happens. We live in a time where we have been told and convinced and have all grown up believing that you have to tell you who you are. Ask Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, wrote a book called Our Secular Age. Ask University of Pennsylvania of the last generation, sociology professor Philip Reif, who wrote a book called uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Um, 
they would all say to you, I'm not original enough, that we live in a time that has convinced you that you are the definer of who you are. You make who you are. You perform yourself into who you are. You achieve who you are. You have to find your own psychological satisfaction. But here's where the old sense of self, here's where the old way of thinking turns into torture. And this is what Philip Reif, or the sociology professor from UPenn and Charles Taylor, philosopher, would say, there's just one problem. This is what makes it torture. You can't name yourself. The self can't declare who the self is. It's literally impossible. You can't declare who you are. A self can't declare a self without other selves confirming it for them. This is why in order to have a true identity, your identity must have recognition that it is true. A comical example of this would be that if I went around telling everybody that I was an NBA basketball player. Now, I know you'd think, probably, but, <laughs> or I could see that. No, but if I just went around telling everybody that I was an NBA basketball player and no NBA team was confirming that or affirming that for me, then I'm the crazy one. I'm not an NBA basketball player, even if I tell you, but I would need something outside of me to confirm my self-declared identity. But the self can't name the self. It has to be recognized as such. A non-comical example of this would be that deep down, we actually all know this because in all of our self-declared identities, all the ways you want to be seen and known, whether they be professional, personal, sexual, spiritual, or relational, all of our self-declared identities, they don't mean anything until the right someone recognizes us as such. We want to be seen a certain way and we need others to confirm and affirm our attempts to name ourselves. So we look to things, we look to people, it has to be the right things and the right people for us to recognize us and to confirm it for us. So if I want to be seen as successful, I need my office or my profession or my network to confirm for me as such. If I want to be seen as a good parent, I need other kids and other parents to confirm that for me. If I want to be seen as being important, I need circles of people that I think are important to confirm that for me. If I want to be seen as lovely, I need a significant other to tell me that I am lovely and lovable. If I want to be seen as being powerful, being rich, being athletic, being meaningful, none of those things matter. If I just believe those things about me, I need the right someone or the right something to confirm that and tell me that those things are true about me. And so whenever we look to something outside of ourselves to confirm the identity that we want to be true about us, whenever we look to those things or those people, if those people or those things are not named Jesus, then the Bible would call that thing an idol. The thing you're looking to, to confirm your identity, if it's not named Jesus, it's an idol. Listen again to what our call to worship that Mary so beautifully called us into. Listen to what Psalm, one, Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 basically say, say the same thing. Look at what the Bible has to say about our idols. The things we look to to confirm our identity. Al, you can throw this back up there. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor there is, is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Here's what the psalmist 
multiple times, book of Isaiah, book of Jeremiah, Jesus and Paul would all confirm this for you. The idols, the places that you and I need to recognize us for the identity that we want to be true about us. If we look to them to confirm us and our identity, here's what it says about those idols, those places, they're all dead. They're all actually nothing. They, they don't actually exist. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't breathe. And then this, this really painful conclusion statement from the psalmist, those who make them and trust in them become like them. Meaning this, it's gonna kill you. If you keep looking to something, a spouse, a job, a career, an, an identity, a reality, a bank account, if you keep looking to something to confirm for you that you are who you say you are, I wanna be seen as a great dad. And if my kids don't see me as a great dad, then I'm not a great dad. I wanna be seen as a great husband. I wanna be seen as someone who is powerful and important. And if you keep looking to all these other places to tell you that, this is what it'll do to you, it'll kill you. You will have eyes, but you won't see. You'll have a mouth, but you can't breathe. That's the old self. That's the pre-Christian self. According to the New Testament, that's not where the Christian gets their identity because you've been transformed not to live according to that way of thinking or identity grabbing anymore. No, you are a new creation. You have a new identity. And here's the kicker. The giver of that new identity actually recognizes it and confirms it for you. So you actually have the one outside of you that can confirm the new identity and make it real. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man and woman, he would say. God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters. He goes on to say in that same section, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Meaning when the Lord made you a new creation, he didn't make you just like a 2.0 version of your old self. He made you into a totally different thing. He made you into a new creature that can fly. He didn't just want to train the old horse how to jump over fence posts. Hicksley gave the horse wings, turned it into a Pegasus so that it could fly. He didn't make it so that you could keep trying to get your identity from all the same places you try to get your identity from and then just do that thing with more efficiency and less stress. That's not what he came to do. He actually came to make you a new creature. He came to turn a horse into a winged creature. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, of course, once the horse has got its wings, it will soar over fences, like way better than any horse could. You, you will do things as a new creature that are way better than the old self could try to do it. You will do things that your old self couldn't do, but not because you New Year's resolutioned yourself into betterness, but because the new creature can fly. And then Paul goes on at the end of this section to tell you just how permanent and secure and the reality and the substance of what that new identity is. Listen to the final verse. This, this is your new identity. This is your new security in Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 21. For our sake, he, that's the Lord, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what Paul just told you. In Christ, you have a new righteousness. 
You don't get your righteousness from yourself. You don't get your security from yourself. You don't get your belonging from yourself. You certainly don't get your identity from yourself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took your sin and your old identity and gave you his identity, his righteousness. So now your identity is as secure as the righteousness of Jesus. You stand before the Lord as one who is spotless and radiant and wanted and belonging and secure and, and, and the father recognizes it and confirms it. It's real. You're a new creation. This is who you are. You're a new winged creature that doesn't have to get an identity from anywhere else. You already have an identity. So nothing you do can make a new identity for you. You already have a new identity. You're a new creature. And I know many Christians in the room will say, but I don't, I don't, feel, like an, I don't feel like a new creation. I don't, I don't feel like a new creature. That's how lame Christians talk. I don't know. I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't feel like a new creature. Paul says, I'm a new creation. I have a new righteousness. C.S. Lewis says, I'm a Pegasus. Great. I don't feel like it. But maybe, maybe you not feeling like it is proof that you are one. Because horses that are still horses don't ever say, I don't feel like a Pegasus. I don't feel like I have wings. Only, only a Pegasus, only a new winged creature would say, man, it doesn't really feel like... It doesn't really feel like my wings are working. Only a new creature would ever say, I don't feel like a new creature. You are a new creation. And of course, when a Pegasus gets its new wings, like C.S. Lewis would say, it doesn't always feel like it knows how to use them. You may even look awkward for a little while. Because when you do something new, you're never good at it. That's what I try to tell premarital couples all the time. You're going to be really bad at this for a really long time because you've never done it before. You're a new creation with a new identity and a new way to confirm and get the new identity. Which is why our mission statement doesn't merely say, we have been transformed. That's true. But the mission statement's very clear. The vision is very clear. We are being transformed. Because remember the we are being is a present continuous passive phrase. It's an ongoing action in the present for the subject, the we, for something that is currently happening to them. The transformation has happened. We are being transformed. It's saying that something is actively transforming us to live out of the transformation that has already happened to us. There's a continual growth in our knowledge, our awareness, our understanding, and our functional living out of the new self and our new identity, which should make us ask, uh, which should make us ask an even bigger existential, even philosophical question for the, for the present moment. How do we become anything? What, what forms us or transforms us into new realities in general? When we say this, we are being transformed. What, what causes us to undergo that being, that, that new creationness? What, what actually can happen to us? How does that happen? One of my favorite living authors, James K. Smith, has written extensively about this and very helpfully. You are what you love, desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom. On the road with St. Augustine, he says, talks about a lot of these things. He expounds on the idea, certainly in you are what you love and desiring the kingdom. He says this, that he, he calls them like the daily habits of your life. He calls them liturgies, like the liturgies of your life, the things that you do over and over again. The liturgies of your life, habits or rituals, 
have a profound power over us to form and transform us. You and I are creatures of habit and the things that you and I make habitual in our life, they don't simply flow out of us and then they go into the ether and have no effect on us. The things that we habitually do, the rituals we have, the liturgies of our life that we have, they deeply affect us. Your liturgies form you. Your habits shape you. Your habits change you. Your liturgies are what transform you. They form and transform you. And so you and I build our lives around how we spend our hours and our days and our weeks. And then over time, those habits and those liturgies have a transformative power over us. You are not immune. You are not the first human ever that is not affected by the way that you spend your time. They have, the, the choices you make and the things you choose to do and give your time to will affect you and will form you and will transform you. You and I are formed and transformed by what we spend our time doing. That's how we're transformed. Brad Shore, he's a, a psychological anthropologist. He ran a center that like studied this at Emory for over a decade. Uh, he spent a whole career studying the phenomenon of rituals and habits. He did it in Southeast Asia and then he did it in the South. <laughs> Scary. But <coughs> really fascinating findings that he has had just studying the power of rituals in people's lives. He says that rituals and habits are perhaps the most powerful tool for change that humans possess, that you actually have agency over. Like things that you choose to do are the most powerful tool for change that you have control over. So let's ask this question, why? Why do our habits and our liturgies form us and transform us? Why is it the most powerful tool that we have to change us and shape us? And I don't mean to oversimplify this, but like psychology would say this, research would say this, the Bible would say this. It's because your habits, my habits, continually put us in front of something. Something to ponder, something to take in, something to see, something to gaze upon, something to behold over and over and over and over and over again. And here's what the Bible would say. You can't behold something continually and not become like it. That's that last sentence in our Psalm call to worship. Those who make them idols become like them so do all who trust in them. You can't gaze upon something over and over and over again at the soul or brain level and not have the thing that you are beholding over and over and over again form you to look like it and be like it. You're a creature of desire, yes. You're a creature that was made to worship, yes. But all those things mean that you will always find something to behold continually. And so the habits and the liturgies of our life will continually put us in front of something so that you can keep beholding it. And as you behold it, you become like it. Do you know that the eyes go to the deepest part of the brain? And you can't actually behold or take something in until you've spent an extended amount of time with that thing. But when you actually can truly behold something, it goes into the deepest part of your brain to wire and rewire it. And so the habits and the liturgies and the rituals of your life keep you beholding something. It keeps it in front of you. And whatever you're beholding will either, if you're a Christian, will either reinforce the new creatureness that is real about you or it will confuse it in you. 
It won't make it not true. It'll just confirm it or confuse it because we become like the thing that we behold. We become like the thing that we spend time gazing upon. We become by beholding. That's how transformation happens. We become by beholding. First John 3, uh, John, the disciple, the apostle, the beloved, uh, wrote uh, several little epistles in the end of the New Testament. First John 3, John is talking about the glory of the life to come. And how this world is hard and we still sin and there's injustice and there's still friction in brotherhood. But one day in the life to come, when we finally fully see the risen Jesus, here's what he, here's what he promises about what will happen to us when all of the fog is removed and we finally see Jesus as he is. First John 3, when we see him, we will be like him. Now, John is talking about glory. He's talking about one day when the veil is removed. He's talking about one day when we don't look through a glass dimly anymore and we finally and fully see Jesus. We will finally and fully be like Jesus because to gaze upon Jesus fully, to fully and truly behold him will transform us. And we will finally and fully believe every drop of what our God has said about us, that he has given us and bought us with his blood a new identity and a new righteousness. When you see him, you will fully believe it. And when you fully believe it and you fully see him, you will fully be like him. To fully behold him would mean to fully be healed one day. To behold truly is to be healed truly. Now, that's a principle that John is building off of. Principle is still true for us on this side of the veil. We look through a glass dimly now. We can't fully see Jesus one day. Our faith will turn to sight, but we can't fully see him right now. But the more we do ponder and behold Jesus here, what he's done for us, even dimly, the more we will be like him here. The more I behold his love for me, the more I will love like him. The more I see what he's done for me, the more I will want to go and do likewise for my enemies. The more we behold him, the more we will believe and live out of our new creation-ness because we become by beholding. Jesus knew this why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, consider the lilies. He's on on a mount, he's on a hillside, and he's looking at the field and he's saying, consider these lilies, consider them. Like, go spend time with them, like in nature. Go ponder them, go sit with them, go gaze at them, and here's what will happen as you begin to behold and ponder and consider these lilies. You will look at them and you will think they are beautiful. And you will wonder, who clothed them? Who gave them this rich garment to make them look this beautiful? And yet these lilies don't ever seem to worry about what they're going to wear or how they're going to look. And then he says, and then you will wonder, am I not much more valuable than these lilies? Maybe I have one that is sustaining me and taking care of me too. It's the same principle. Jesus is saying, go, go, go and behold him. Go and behold him in nature. Go and take him in. Come and look at him and ponder him and consider him and you will be transformed. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have to keep beholding him if we're ever going to live as transformed people because the old self that still loves to rear its head in the new self The old self is so confused in who we are, so confused in our identity. We don't know who we are. St. Augustine, who's probably like the the godfather, he's the OG of like 
helping us see that we don't know who we are because he didn't know who he was apart from the Lord. He said this about the Lord. He said, Lord, you know the numbers of hairs on our heads, but what may be more numerous is our ever-changing moods and workings of our hearts. Here's what Augustine is saying. Our interior life is a wreck. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we want. We try to name ourselves and then try to find other people or other things to confirm and recognize our new identity. What may be more numerous is our ever-changing moods and workings of our heart. So we have to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back to the same habits and same liturgies that the scripture calls us to, to drink living water. Living water does quench your thirst, but then we tend to go drink from other wells. So we have to keep coming back to drink living water. We keep trying to secure ourselves. We keep trying to make others recognize us for who we are. By the way, this is where most marriage fights come from. Just FYI, a little side note, free marriage counseling. Y'all fight because, my wife and I never do this, but y'all do this because, because one person is not seeing the other person the way they want to be seen in that moment. And so now I'm angry because you're not recognizing me the way I want to be seen and recognized right now. We keep trying to declare an identity, but that identity must be secured by others. And Jesus says to you, come and behold what I've done for you. Come, come if you're thirsty, come if you're needy. We just sang about this, come all you pining. Come if you're exhausted from the old way of trying to name yourself. Jesus says to you, come and take my righteousness. Let me make you and let me tell you who you are. And as, as that becomes ritual, as that becomes habit, as that becomes a liturgy, that we would come again and again to him, you are and will be transformed. Let's pray. Jesus, we're going to come to the table here in just a few minutes, but I pray you guide my friends, um, prepare their hearts to, uh, to behold what you've done that we're, we're a wilderness of wants, more numerous are the moods and the workings of our hearts. Would you, would you calm that? Would you settle that? That however we want to be seen, whatever we want to be true about us, you've, you've come to turn creatures into sons. Would, would, that, would that be a resting place for our numerous wants? Guide us now as we come and taste and see, not just what you've done, but who you are. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.